0: you can imagine in these last Sundays, four or five, how many many we have together, before I step aside from the senior ministry, still involved in KT, we're not going anywhere apart from traveling the world for Jesus. You can imagine I had to think about what what, what I'm going to say in these days. It's an important time. You'll find in revival times for the month of September, things I've been most passionate about. And I'd love to preach through all of those things, but it would probably take me another 30 years to do it. And so, what I want to talk about, what should I say The person I want to talk about is the person of the Holy Spirit. Because anytime we think about ministry or mission, we have to be conscious of the Holy Spirit, his work, what he's done and what he does and what he will do. Over the last decades, we've highlighted some of them in the Revival Times, which is also available online, as you know. The various moves of God, too numerous to mention, but every single one of them is like an incoming tide, which with each successive wave coming higher up the beach. The tide is still coming in. The tide has not turned against the gospel. The Bible says that God will continue to pour out his spirit upon all flesh, preparing the nations and the world for the return of Jesus Christ. Building up the body of Christ both in number and in lifestyle to resemble Jesus. Until that day comes when not only, as the Bible says, will the nation of Israel be brought back into the covenant of God, but the Gentile nations also in a level which the Bible calls the fullness of the nations, all that lies ahead. I don't know where we are in that end time scheme of things. One thing I can confidently predict is if I confidently predicted anything, I'd be wrong. But we do know that God continues to work in the church. And it's that continuing story that I want to talk about today. And it all relates to the Holy Spirit. In the documentary that we made a year ago, Light to the Nations, you will see me give glory and testimony to the help that Jesus gives us all by his Holy Spirit, his gifts, the anointing, the ability, the spirit of sanctification, the spirit of intercession. We owe everything to the Holy Spirit. So in these last weeks, I want you to focus on the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, does not detract from Jesus because the Holy Spirit's work is to spotlight Jesus, and Jesus' work is to glorify the Father. So I'm going to roughly base this on certain chapters in the book of Acts as I feel it, which is what I really mean is, as I sense the Holy Spirit leading me. Acts chapter one, verses one to five. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And Luke goes on to record what happened 10 days after that. We're living in the era of blockbuster movies, always with a sequel, sometimes many sequels till you reach Star Wars with 12 of them, if you include the first one, Indiana Jones, running up second, four uh, sequels, uh, and five, if you count the one that's been postponed until 2022. Now, it's not just movie theaters with sequels. We, We have prequels as well, When you've done with sequels, you go to prequels, when you're done with that, you do trilogies, we've done with that, you go with TV series and bins watching on Netflix, Amazon and other forms of media outlets. Things that goes on and on. Now one of the things with sequels, I don't know if you find them, is that sometimes the sequel isn't as good as the first one. Have you noticed that? Sometimes there's an exception and the sequel is better than the first one. That's what I think about The Black Stallion and The Black Stallion Returns. It's okay. These, this was filmed in 1979, 30 years ago or more, 40 years ago, whatever. The Black Stallion is a movie featuring Kelly Reno, a young actor who plays Alex, young boy. And the story is he's stranded on a desert island. He's shipwrecked, washed up to shore, and then also a beautiful horse that was part of the ship's cargo is also swept on shore. The story begins with this stranded, isolated, alienated young boy finding a relationship with this horse, and the bond that develops is the theme of the movie, 1979. 1983, the sequel, rather unimaginatively called The Black Stallion Returns. And here the story is, the Black Stallion is stolen, supposedly by the original owner. And the young boy, now slightly more mature, four years older, stows away on an airplane to Casablanca, following the black, as they called him, the black horse, the black stallion. And then the story goes of how he tries to recover what he considers to be his horse in Morocco. All right. What did the critics think? Well, i would read some of them. Some were scathing and some were really appreciative. Let me just show, show you a scathing one of the, of the sequel. This is a contrived cornball story, said one uh, critic. And then he went on to say, those watching it will find it an interminable bore. For a, th- for a moment, I thought they were talking about sermons preached in churches, but no, it's a movie. Now, I don't agree with that critic's assessment. I actually found the second movie Although, yeah, it was a bit corny, and yeah, it was box office orientated, but I enjoyed it. Now, when it comes to God, he is the master of sequels. No sooner have you mastered one phase of his glorious revelation, which always anticipates the next phase, than the next phase comes along. And in a sense, it's almost greater than the previous phase. I'm not exactly sure I'm entitled to say that, but I do know that God's sequels are moving and working together to the great climax of everything when Jesus Christ returns, the return of the king, all right, not just the black stallion, the return of the king is going to be the climax, the culmination of everything that God is doing and the story he is telling and writing in our hearts and writing in the hearts of the nations of the world. We get a bit of an idea of that from Luke's two books. Of course, Luke's gospel, the third gospel, is written by Luke, the physician, who accompanied the apostle Paul on a number of his missionary journeys. And uh, now, here it says, the beginning of Acts, he says, in my first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that happened until he was taken up. But the work of Jesus continues, as we know, because the book of Acts is all about Jesus. Did you know that? People say the gospel is about Jesus. The Acts is about the local church or the churches. No, no, it's all about Jesus. Because when Jesus left the planet physically, his first executive act on the throne of the universe at the right hand of the Father was to receive the promise of the Spirit and pour out the Spirit upon the church. And in this way, though he is absent physically until the day he returns to this planet physically, and we all see him, but until then, he is present by his Holy Spirit. Therefore, from the day of Pentecost formally up until the return of Jesus Christ, we're living in this age of the Holy Spirit, the era of the absent Lord physically, but spiritually present by the Holy Spirit. So let's see how these two books work together and unfold. The first book is the beginning, what Jesus began to do, and that is in Luke, Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Let's read this prologue and we'll see how it ties together. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I'm told, you can see for myself, that the Language here is high level language, it's formal, pretty intellectual, it's objective, and it is factual. You see that both books, part one and part two, are dedicated to this person who is called Theophilus, which means friend of God or a lover of God or loved by God. And Bible scholars have always wondered who this fellow was. Some have suggested that it's a generic description for all of us, your name is Theophilus, if you are a friend of God and a lover of God. So we could say it's addressed to us and so it is. One interesting interpretation, which was held by the late uh, uh, David Pawson, was that Theophilus is actually a real person and he was the apostle Paul's lawyer. And uh, what Luke is doing is preparing a brief, a factual account in both these parts so that Theophilus could use this material, which was reliable, well-researched, well-documented, sources quoted and everything, in Paul's defense in Rome. Now, I don't know about that. I thought it's just an interesting thing to pass on to you. But why I mention it is because The detail to which Luke goes, his careful research, his very strong dependence upon eyewitness accounts, things which are reliable, which he has sought out through his own personal investigation, setting things in a certain order, organizing the material to this one goal for Theophilus and all of us, that we may know that we can trust the Gospels. We can trust what Luke says in the third Gospel. We can trust the other Gospels as interdependence on many of those Gospels. And uh, also, we can trust the narrative of the book of Acts. It is as reliable as anything that could be produced in a court of law to prove a case. And we see this same idea carried through in the beginning of his second book, which is the book of Acts. We read it just a moment ago. There was a very specific period in the life and ministry of Jesus, an important period, not just an interlude. It was not the intermission between the original and then the sequel. It is a very important period, a 40-day period. Now, I wonder if you can imagine that. Here we have Jesus resurrected from the dead and he appears in certain time-limited manifestations of his physical resurrected presence on this planet. Jesus didn't do it indiscriminately. He did it and focused especially on a group of people called the apostles. And these are not like the apostles we have today. These were the apostles whose qualification to give witness to Jesus was that they accompanied him on his ministry. They were eyewitnesses of everything that's recorded in the scripture. Therefore, we know that these accounts in the gospels and acts are not fake made up stuff generations later or even decades and decades later, certainly not legends and certainly not fiction made up for some spiritual, political, social, cultural purpose. These were faithful men reporting faithfully what they have seen and what they have experienced. Now, just because that's more than 2,000 years ago, it doesn't invalidate their testimony. If somebody was an eyewitness to events that took place yesterday, and that was recorded and verified, what happened yesterday is as true today as it will be 10, 15, 100 years from now. Authentic eyewitness testimony and record, reliable account. Now, the time when Jesus was appearing to people to prove that he was alive. We can think of a number of occasions when Jesus showed up. On one occasion, there was a significant person amongst the disciples missing. His name was Thomas. Judas wasn't there. There should have been 11. Judas now had gone. There should have been 11, but there were only 10. Thomas didn't show up at the meeting. Now, Jesus showed up, and Thomas heard about it. He said, I don't believe you, not until I see with my own eyes. Next week, he shows up, and Jesus shows up again. And Thomas now recognizes the slightly skeptical, I don't blame him, but slightly skeptical disciple, now believes, and Jesus says, You believe now because you've seen that witness is very important. Eyewitness testimony is important, but he says, this witness that you're gonna make is going to cause people who've never seen to believe because of your testimony. Now that's powerful. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul describes an event in Galilee where Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. And and he says, many of them are still alive. By the time he was writing this, many of them are still alive and saying, ask them. They were there. And so this is so important in our generation to understand that when we talk about the Christian faith, it is not Merely a matter of opinion or supposition or just what we think or what other people think. This is what we know. How do we know? Because it rests on credible, reliable witness as per a court of law. Amen and amen. That's a very strong point I want to leave with you. Come back to that a little bit towards the end. But here's something else. How does this happen? How does Jesus... Prove that he's alive. Very simple and obvious. He does it by showing up. All right. What does that mean? It means that he is prepared to show up and he hasn't changed. When you need him the most, he is going to show up for you. That's the pattern. That's the principle. He has not changed. He is the God who shows up. Whenever you need him, you can depend on him showing up. He does it at the right time, the right moment, but he always shows up. Jesus is going to show up for you. Whatever you're going through. And we can always say that the stuff that we go through is is, is, we need a bit of resurrection life injected into us. We need a bit of a taste of what it means to be walking with the risen, resurrected Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus proves he's raised from the dead by showing up. There is a story um, I kind of got the gist of it, but it makes a strong point anyway. I think it, it is based on fact, at least in part. But let me tell you the story as I heard it. There was a very famous Christian scholar, professor and an apologist. Now, an apologist isn't somebody who apologizes for the faith, but somebody who shows the reasons behind the faith. It's to, to do with logic and reason. And he was being interviewed. I don't know the context. I think it might have been a journalistic context. And, And he was asked this question. You talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. How do you know that Jesus is alive? Pause, what might you think would be his answer? He's a learned man, a scholarly man, a man who knew virtually everything that there was to know about this topic. What did he reply? He said, of course Jesus is alive. I was just talking to him five minutes ago. So really, the greatest assurance that Jesus is alive is having a relationship with him, communing with him. We don't see him, but we know him and we love him. Now, also... Recognize this. Yes, Jesus shows up, but you also have got to show up. Hello? Thomas didn't show, he didn't see. Then, when he showed, Jesus showed and he saw. And this happens all over the place. And I say this passionately today to our people and indeed others who are listening. Don't stop showing up. Why would I even suggest that? I'll tell you why. Because that's the natural tendency. That's what we go through in our experience when we're under pressure. Have you noticed that? We don't feel so well. We feel under pressure. Circumstances are bad. We feel down. And at that particular time, we stop showing up. Maybe little by little till eventually we're showing up at nothing. We, we, we don't show up in our daily meeting time with the Lord. We don't show up. We don't show up in our cell meeting when people are gathering online or in person. We don't show up in the services. We might surf the web uh, and look church surf and think that's what we're really being spiritual. But actually it's an excuse not to show up. I want to encourage you. I'm not discouraging. I want to encourage you. Show up. Get back to the place of prayer. Get back to the place of fellowship. Show up for Jesus and Jesus will show up for you. Amen and amen. Now, just one more thing. How does he show up? He shows up as the resurrected Lord. You know, there might have been a lot of confusion in the minds of the disciples as they walked with Jesus and he said, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be raised again. And Peter said, don't do it. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. And and afterwards, and he was crucified all the disciples fled. And some said, we thought that this was the one who was going to redeem us, but we were so wrong. And then Jesus shows up and they recognize now when they meet the resurrected Jesus, that it was all true. Everything that he claimed about himself, all that he said about the kingdom of heaven, all that he said about his heavenly father, all that he prayed about, all that he prophesied about, all that he taught about was true and vindicated by the fact that God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Don't expect him to show up to take your side. I am a bit like this myself, always think that I'm right and Jesus is on my side. And if there's a dispute, I think I'm right. Come on, Jesus, you're on my side. Actually, he's not on your side. He's not on my side. We're supposed to be on his side. He doesn't side with anybody. He takes his own side and we line up with him. He is the Lord. He doesn't come, as people say, to take sides, but to take over. He is Lord. He's the head of the church and he is coming again. So during that period of time, They were receivers of Jesus' produce, that he produced, his proof that he produced, that he was alive. Very important time in history. Those early apostles passed away, but they left their testimony for us. And we live from those words of confidence. And even Luke says to Theophilus, I want you to be certain concerning the things you have been taught. That's an important part. And it's beginning to be eroded, our confidence, because of so many things that are happening out there, and people are doubting and denying the word of God and struggling with this. Don't let God's word be taken from you. Hold to the word of God. Be confident in the word of God. And if you do that, you will find Jesus showing up for you in a way that the reality of the resurrection will not just be some confessional faith statement, not just something you read in the book, even the Bible, it will be something that's alive in your heart. Resurrection faith is what makes all the difference. My mind, as you know, is thinking very much about mission and future and and the present and the ongoing ministry of the church and all that God wants to do. And as I compare our generation, the 21st century, with the first century, I see some remarkable differences. When you go back to the very beginning, the book of Acts and so on, we know, of course, it's the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. But also... They had something which I think we need to make sure we've got it. And if we haven't got it, seek God until we get it. And that is a clear revelation and understanding that Jesus is real and he really is alive and he's everything he claims to be. Now, contrast a little bit. Okay, what do we have certainly in the minority world, the Western world? What do we have? We have education. We have finance. We have business acumen. We have uh, people who are high-level social standing and influential people, all part of the Christian faith. We, we have so many of these things. Now, the very early church, they didn't have any of that. You know, we can look back, not just on 30 years, but and the experience that we have and which we'll pass on to The next generation of leadership? No, but you can go further back than that. You can go 2,000 years and you can trace the history of the church on every mistake that the churches have made and all the issues, all that we faced, all that we've learned. Now, today, a minister, you and I, ministering the 21st century, have all that experience and wisdom and knowledge and, and trial and error. We even learn from the mistakes of church history. They had none of that. They had no history to draw on. They had no education, especially these bunch of people. Paul, of course, was highly educated. But very few of them had social standing. Very few of them had business acumen. I guess the fisherman disciples were quite good businessmen. But by and large, they have had nothing of what we have. But they have something. They had something. I'm not saying we don't have it, but I think we need more of it. What they had was a clear experience of the resurrected Christ. And when they proclaimed the resurrection, they said, we've just seen him. We heard him. He's alive. He was dead but now he's alive and in his name we proclaim freedom and redemption and forgiveness and we proclaim healing in his name to the nations now we've got to get back to that this is not a make-believe faith resurrection faith is about jesus christ alive today and living in you by his holy spirit and that's where the holy spirit comes in not just to make these things real but to empower us that we might also become proof producers in our generation. I don't know if you recall, many of you who followed the late Dr. Morris Sorello's ministry and mission to London and other places. He preached uh, many times on this, but I remember one time powerfully, he he preached his proof producer's sermon. Anybody heard that? It was so powerful, impacted me, saying that now, through the Holy Spirit, we, in our generation, we are the ones by the Spirit who produce the proof that Jesus is alive by our testimony, by our lifestyle, by the signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit that He distributes amongst us and through us. So the story continues. This time continues through you through your life and that story will continue until Jesus returns that story was operating before I came here and long after I have stepped aside from my current role that story will continue here and God's story may I say it this way it sounds crazy but it gets better and better do you know what I mean Trying to find a verse for that. He saves the best wine for last. The the glory of the latter house more glorious than the former. But I, I don't know whether it's exactly like that, but it really seems to me that God never diminishes. His power and presence and blessing and purposes always increase and increase until the day Jesus returns. Look ahead and be ready. Glorious things are waiting in Jesus' name. Well, if this is the case, dear friends, what manner of people ought we to be? Living in the reality, the lived experience of the resurrection. Now today, it's not always positive, but today there's a lot of emphasis on lived experience. And that is uh, almost the only truth that's left. It's what you feel. Well, this is my lived experience. Remember Oprah Winfrey? This is your truth. (laughs) As if your truth is going to be different from somebody else's truth, because truth is truth. All right, put that on one side. But the good thing about that expression is that when you experience something for yourself, not just as an invention or your own personal, introverted, subjective take on things, but when you experience something like the presence of Jesus in such a way that corresponds to the testimony of God down through the centuries and the living testimony of God's people today, not only do you know it's true, but when you experience it, people know that you know It's true. And then they ask questions. How can you be so sure there's something different about you? Well, I want to tell you this. It's not me. It's Christ in me. The Son of God has loved me. The Son of God died for me. And the Son of God lives in me. And and the life I live in the body, I do not live by my flesh, but by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a credible testimony because they see, not only do you mean it, but they see that you live it and you've experienced it. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He gives us the lived experience of spiritual truth and reality. And when that happens, everything changes. When that happens, What you do with your time reflects, or your your resurrection faith reflects in the way you use your time. Your commitment is attached to this. For the rest of your lives, you live as people of faith, people of passion, and as we shall see, people of power, because the Holy Spirit not only gives you the reason for the witness and the experience that leads to witness, he gives you the power and ability to proclaim that witness and to live it out before a watching world who will see you and say, Lord Jesus, you really are alive. I've just seen you. I've just seen you in this person, in that person. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it all begins with knowing that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. Amen and amen.